0: Hey, everybody, welcome to episode number 139 of the John Riley Project. And man, I'm so happy to have as my guest, Mr. Pete Murray. Pete, how you doing? We're hanging in there, John, I think, like most. It's good to see you, at least in video format. I I look forward (laughs) to seeing you in person soon. I look forward to that as well. Um, Get a little glimpse there of your office. So um, you can tell I'm right now, I'm hanging out at Poway Park, old Poway Park, right? (laughs) Yeah,
1: I I think I should drive down there and see the setup you must
0: have. Exactly. Um, Just having a little fun with the green screen. But man, we're just so happy to have you on board. You know, we were on the podcast here, which must have been about four months ago. And we talked about all kinds of amazing things, learning about the criminal justice system. And I'll tell you, for me, I learned a great deal. Um, in our conversation. Um, but, you know, you reached out to me and said, hey, you know, there's a lot going on in the world today. There's a lot to be said, you know. And so just want to just thank you for joining me and look forward to having a fun conversation.
1: It's ultimately all my pleasure, John. It, uh you know, when I reached out to you, it, you know, it was more of a line. I don't know that I won't presume to say I have a voice that I want to be heard. I, I, I have experience. Uh, look at me. I've, I've been around a little while. <laughs> and uh, to the degree I can provide some insight to your listeners out there and to you, uh, I'm, I'm delighted to try to do that. But uh, I have no misunderstandings that my voice is no more important than anyone else's out there. So, uh, so let's explore some of the things you want
0: to talk about and see if I can help. Well, before we get started, I just kind of give our listeners and viewers some context because maybe they right. didn't capture or they didn't listen to the previous podcast, but your background is extraordinary um in in, um, in the legal system oh, Thank you Can you just give us a kind of a snapshot of of you know your career and and the things that um, that you've been involved in
1: sure i uh as you know, we, we talked about this, I, I was in a campaign, so, uh, I learned real quick how to start zipping through this, uh, <laughs> you know, sum up your life and you have two minutes to do it. Um, but long story short, I, uh, came out of New Jersey, uh, kind of, uh, I wouldn't say inner city, but, uh, urban New Jersey, uh, just outside, uh, Newark, um, was young, uh, but it was there and of some relevance, uh, during the, the late sixties and watched Newark burn to the ground in 1967, mm. uh, the so-called hot, long summer or long hot summer as they called it. But, uh, I went from there, uh, to college at Duke university and under ROTC scholarship, uh, that brought me into the Navy directly out of college where I spent eight years flying, uh, for the United States Navy, um, Left the Navy to go to law school, where I returned to Duke, went to law school. Uh, Fortunate enough to have an offer to come to a large law firm that uh, was in L.A. Uh, They're actually international. And I told them that, uh, you know, all things equal, I'd like to go back to San Diego. And that's what brought us back out here in 1990. Worked there for a couple of years, uh, decided I needed a little something more. Uh, and so I joined the district attorney's office and did that for 12 years. Uh, I was a deputy wow. DA and then uh, decided, you know, maybe I get fancy. I don't know. Uh, after 12 years, <laughs> I I left open to my own practice, did that for eight years. Uh, again, of some relevance to our discussion today, I, I, I did uh, defend criminal defense work, but I, I worked in a lot of different areas. Uh, not the least of which is I represented cops uh, through a union at, at one point. So wow. um, uh, for quite a bit um, as part of my defense work, if you will. Uh, and then about uh, nine years ago, I uh, shut that down to uh, take an opportunity or take a job. I had gotten a call from the attorney general's office. And that's where I am now as a deputy attorney general prosecuting health care fraud and elder abuse. And uh, that's what I'm doing today.
0: Wow. So that's something. I mean, you know, with all the, um, you know, the, the discussion about police brutality, about the George Floyd case, um, some of the racial, um, systemic racism that we've been hearing so much about, witnessing for so long, um, people really taking to the streets. I mean, I think that some of the things that you've covered in your career, you've you've touched on some of this. You've been on the front lines of some of this, you know, either in the courtroom or interacting with the police, as you said, you represented many of them. So, wow. I mean, when you're seeing, I mean, let's just think from big picture, you're seeing all of these, uh, all the news today. I mean, what's running through your mind when, when you see uh, people with their signs calling, um, for racial justice and now even defunding the police, which is a whole new kind of level of extreme. But um, what, what are what are your thoughts? Hmm.
1: I, I think I'm, I'm pained, but I would want any of your listeners and you to know that I, by that, I don't mean I'm pained by the protests. I actually love that. I mean, I, I teach constitutional law a little bit in the high schools. Uh, And and the right uh, of the people to assemble and seek a redress of their grievances uh, is fundamental to our country. So it's wonderful. It's wonderful to see people express themselves and not be afraid to get out there. I love that. Uh, I I guess I'm pained by what forces them and makes them feel they must do that. Because, you know, now, you know, 40 years ago, um, well, almost 50 years ago, Uh, I watched Newark, New Jersey almost burn to the ground and uh, when L.A. had riots in Detroit and so forth. And we've had other incidents ever since uh, periodically, and here we are seemingly not making a whole lot of advance. And and that is what I find painful. Why are we not able to do better as a society? And uh, that's probably my overriding thing is, wow, we're just not— We're just not moving to that next level sufficiently. I think things are better than they were in the late 60s, but they're obviously Mm -hmm. not perfect. They've gotten a little more subtle. and Maybe that's even more dangerous now. Well,
0: remember in the early 90s, the whole Rodney King affair, um, police, I mean, beat that guy up. I mean, it was captured on tape. The whole city erupted, Uh, protests all around the country, and yet. We just had a similar incident, actually far worse, that happened in Minneapolis. So I agree with you that it seems like things aren't changing anywhere near to the degree that they need to change. And it's sad that we seem to, you know, it's kind of like in COVID, you know, it's like it's like Groundhog Day to a degree um, that it keeps playing over and over again.
1: Yeah. I mean, we 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 have, uh, you know, a subtlety. Um, I believe in society of racism and some might challenge me on that. Um, But I would tell them, don't think I minimize it. I I almost think that's worse. Um, Well, of course it's not than overt racism, but I think what we've done is made ourselves feel better because overt racism has seemingly reduced, but there's clearly a more subtle racism uh, that exists and it 's a problem, and it's yeah. it's mm-hmm. an entrenched problem, and that 's maybe why it's pain you know why I think it's painful because we 've got to find a way to get beyond that and we, we've got to find a way that people don't feel like they're not getting a fair shake, because this country can't survive without that, with the major- with the vast majority, most of the people feeling, you know what, all I want is a fair shake in life. And if they're not getting that, we've got trouble and we always will. Well,
0: it seems that, you know, the rhetoric about our country, th- this notion of equality under the law is something that we all believe in supposedly, but yet the end result never is equality under the law. Um, so it, it's it's it is it's like we we keep repeating the same mistakes. And the I, the good news, I think, from this, if you want to say there's a silver lining, is that I think we're learning more. We're learning the depth of what this is, because certain things like when when politicians say they're, they're for law and order, you know, they're the uh, the tough on crime politician on one level that sounds you know, like a good thing. But when you see how it's implemented, you realize the racial um, disproportion of how that's actually executed.
1: Yes. And I've watched it change uh, literally in my career. I I know. uh, Look, I was a D.A. um, relatively young, uh, you know, at least early in my career as a D.A. within the first, uh, you know, four or five years. I forget the exact year when three strikes law came out. I mean, and the whole mode of, look, we're tough on crime. And I've long since tired of that phrase. Uh, You know, when I ran for judge, um, you know, that sometimes came up as in code sometimes, you know, how tough on crime you might be. It's like code. It is. And Mm -hmm. I go, what do you mean? Who's not tough? On crime, That's almost that's a silly statement.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and this notion he's a law and order judge. What does that really mean? Yeah, uh, I like to focus on when I hear that. I think people are stealing that phrase some uh, on the one extreme, if you will. We need law and order. Uh, we hear. OK, I'll be clear. We hear our president talking about law and order. Yes. Well, guess what? The first word there is law. Right. And that needs to be first and foremost. If we by the law, we mean the Constitution first and foremost Mm -hmm. and the laws that all follow from that. And if that is the preeminent factor, uh, it's then the order will follow. But this notion of law and order somehow has come to mean a, you know, overwhelming police force to literally take out all the bad criminals I think is kind of bastardizing that phrase. I mean, law and order starts with a law which recognizes at its very core the fundamental rights of the people of this country.
0: It it almost seems that as um, we've shifted in the direction of of rule of law, law and order, the role of the police seems to have changed to some degree, um, where at least from my perspec- perspective, they are. Rather than reacting to crimes after they exist, after they occur, they seem to be proactively digging around, looking for trouble Um, and and in doing so, kind of going after people that are really innocent in the first place. Um, Mm -hmm. What's your take on that?
1: Uh, you know, I'll be careful because I haven't you know, done the, stu- you know, the research to, to really back up what I'm about to say. It's a perception, you know, a perception based on 30 years of working in, you know, in the courts, um, in law enforcement, in one form or another, being on both sides of it. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the perception is we took a good idea, you know, what we called proactive policing Uh, It's really the basis for a program. You know, there's something called it was abbreviated, at least out here, called COPS, community oriented policing, Mm -hmm. uh, which on its face, I agree with at least the sound of it. Get police into the community. Uh, But what we started doing is going, look, we can't just react. We we want to get in there and stop it before it happens. And that may sound good on its face. I think it's very troubling in practice because it, it reminds me of that. Now, you probably are going to be better at this than I. What was that movie that, uh, you know, we we project who are future criminals and um, that's anathema to our system?
0: Uh, I think, wasn't that Tom Cruise Minority Report?
1: Yes, Minority Report. There you and go. And it was
0: uh, they were people were being arrested for pre-crimes, pre-crimes. You know? That's right.
1: Because they uh, knew they were going to happen. We knew they would commit a crime, <laughs> and the notion of that, I think, is very troubling. Because who are we going to when we don't have one of those technological things in Minority Report that that we can project the future? We're going to start to you know use a lot of data to say we know who will commit a crime and we don't. And when we think we do, we're running down this very path that we shouldn't be on. Look, police work and prosecution work is reactive by definition. And quite frankly, Mm -hmm. it should be. Mm -hmm. We don't get to stop people from committing crime because we think they might. We have to react to it when they do. And that's makes for a, perhaps a dicier environment but to go the other way runs uh, the real risk uh, of trampling constitutional rights. I, I believe right. that
0: mm-hmm. it almost goes into the category of uh, guilty until proven innocent in some cases. Um, and right. that can be very dangerous, you know, like. um almost like a dystopian movie coming, uh, playing out in real life, you know, like, like sure. Tom Cruise, a minority report. Sure. Um, we, we target
1: certain communities.
0: We target certain
1: areas cause we know that's where crime comes out of. But when we do that, uh, the innocent folks, the vast majority who are, you know, just living their life. Yes. They may live in an area that has some high crime drug trafficking, but when cops uh, are coming into these communities, um, you know, repeatedly, uh, you're beginning to set up. And I don't mean a police officer w- walking the beat. I mean, cops in SWAT gear and so forth. I mean, you're walking down that path of uh, no surprise. They're scared to death. Of right. Police. Right. Um, they've, they've set up a, a tone that uh, it's kind of an us against them mentality. And I will tell you that you know, I'll get in a lot of trouble for this from some of my colleagues, but uh, there is very much that attitude. It exists. I I will tell you after 30 years, it's it's us, the good guys wearing the white hats versus mm-hmm. those guys. And, you know, look, police, law enforcement uh, and prosecution, too. I mean, we talk about to protect and serve. Mm. Um, we are not fighting a war. Uh, unfortunately in my mind, police work, and I know you've touched on this in some, in your uh, discussions, uh, you know, in some of your dialogue you've had that we've uh, we've created a war factor out there. And as a former military man, uh, I take great exception to it. Uh, and I've watched it. I've watched it grow. Um, and I think it's finally hit a head, which is, this is, Police work is not a war. And yeah, maybe I don't think it started, but it certainly was enhanced by the proverbial war on drugs. Um, well, it's,
0: it's interesting because now the police are getting some of this um, surplus military equipment. I mean, they have tanks and all kinds of things scary uh, yeah it is it's a lot different than old barney fife on mayberry rfd
1: (laughs) uh you know i i do a lot of fraud work um Mm -hmm. and we'll do i've gone on search warrant executions on people who've charged with uh not even charged yet expected uh that they may be committing fraud work which is mostly white collar type crime i mean it's not Mm -hmm. good it needs to be attacked and we do Mm -hmm. but i can tell you uh, when a group of law enforcement agents and et cetera go into an event like that they're not going in knocking go hey you know can we talk to you they're walking in in uh, effectively riot gear they're wearing flak vests Mm -hmm. you know vest with that they have uh, you know you know riot type helmets on and they do it for a reason and I will tell you where it comes from it begins with really begins and ends with this notion um officer safety sure and okay i understand that and i have understood that for years look we don't want our cops you know being ambushed but wait a sec, you know but god forbid we might actually think of looking at it the other way what about the people whose house you're going into Hmm. I, I mean those are citizens and what about their safety
0: well, the, the the classic story that just occurred recently was uh, was Brianna Taylor. And wow. she and she was a victim of a no knock warrant where the police yes. went to the wrong house. Yes. And, and and I don't know what happened when they were in the house. I don't know the details of the case, but but she's dead now. Um, yeah. So it's just when sometimes you just wonder if, you know, they, we need to dial back this sort of aggressiveness. Um, And I understand police safety, but sometimes maybe we've gone a little too far.
1: And and that's really what I'm getting at is, um, you know, I I see the gear they have out there, and this will not make me friends in law enforcement. Um, But I I really question whether they need to have uh, the same level of weaponry that I had on an attack helicopter that was meant to go into war. Yeah. Um, and in mm-hmm. some cases they do. Um, and, and something's wrong there. This, we, we are not at war in the streets of our country. And, you know, that what cops would say is you're going to make our life a lot more difficult. And my answer is that, unfortunately, is the nature of the job. It's a very difficult job. But your job, first and foremost, is to protect every one of those citizens out there. And if you look upon them as the enemy to be fought, Uh, then we're going to have problems. Um,
0: Well, isn't that kind of maybe the point of a lot of our civil liberties is to make it hard for them to, for the police to apprehend uh, people Uh, because they have to get, you know, all of the necessary ducks in a row, the warrants, et cetera, the, the evidence before they can barge into someone's home.
1: Yes. I, well, (laughs) ideally, um, you know, I, I, like to do this little drill when I go into the high schools and I uh, asked the kids to look at not only the Constitution in particular, you know, the, the original Constitution, but that first little group of Bill of Rights that we yeah. passed almost immediately thereafter. Um, and I said, uh, so where did you get uh, the rights of free speech? And they'll look through there. Oh, that's, you know, in the First Amendment. I said it's not where that right comes from right those are rights you know we go back to that that you know the people are endowed with certain inalienable rights and that's I right. emphasize I said you had it you have it you've always had it. the Bill of Rights is nothing more than a direct prohibition from the government to take it from you uh, under and that's what the Bill of Rights is it's it, you, you didn't you weren't given these rights by the government. You have them as an American citizen. That's what our founding fathers gave us. And when we, I think if we look at it that way and say, you know, that's what the Bill of Rights, it's to put a check on government action. All of it, all of the Bill of Rights is addressed to that very notion. Here's what the government very specifically is not going to be allowed to do. And, you know, again, we're talking about these are the rights of the citizens that they have. And if we keep that in mind, when we presume to execute a search warrant that requires probable cause signed by a judge uh, in order to overcome the people's inalienable right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures, it's right. as simple as that. Um but I've seen that and I'm afraid to say too often, not look, most cops, let me be clear here. Cops are hardworking. They want to do well. Oh, sure. um, they get it at, at its core, but there's, there's sometimes a tone of, you know, look, I get pushed back all the time when I question whether there's sufficient probable cause in a search warrant and I become the bad guy. Why are you, you know, why are you not just signing off on this? And I go, look, it's not just because my name happens to show up on the bottom of it. uh, And it's not just because I want you to keep to keep you from being embarrassed when you go to a judge and they happen to read it and say, I don't see it's there. Uh, It's more of because that's what our law requires. Right. We have to accept that. And and that limits us, makes it more difficult. Of course it does. Right. That's what it was supposed
0: to do. Exactly. (laughs) You know, it's funny. Is like I, I saw. You know, uh, someone mentioned on Twitter. They said that the the Constitution is is built to limit the government and empower the people. Yes. But this idea of um, of uh, qualified immunity empowers the police and limits the people. It's almost like the opposite. And so, given that you were representing police in in a court of law. I'm curious to get your take on this notion of what qualified immunity is. Maybe you can explain it and, and share with us how important it is or how, or is it something that can be repealed?
1: Uh, well, it is, it's certainly something that can be repealed. Um, because as you know, there's nothing in the constitution that, uh, Speaks of immunity in in any way that I'm familiar with, um, except in some fairly generalized terms. But, um, and and let me start with this. As a prosecutor, the minute I issue a case um, and and start the prosecution aspect, I have absolute immunity. Absolute. And Mm -hmm. so absolute immunity is... Uh, if someone sued me, the, the first thing we would do, again, if it's within that that uh, frame of during the court, for example, something I say in a courtroom, uh, and they sue me for whatever they want to sue me for, uh, the very first thing we do will, would bring, uh, you know, a, a response to that, a, 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 a demur that the case should be thrown out because I have absolute immunity. And once it is shown that I'm a prosecutor exercising governmental func- uh, a governmental function, the case is over. It, there is no, they cannot proceed. Qualified immunity seems like a big step down, but in practice, it's a lot more difficult. The, the step down is this, is in order to have qualified immunity, which applies to a lot of executive administrative personnel, and that includes police officers, uh, as long as they're operating in the, and I'm going to butcher this perhaps, you know, but it's for our purposes, I think I can get close enough. Uh, as long as they're operating within the course of scope of their employment uh, and they are not in violation of, of any known accepted constitutional statutory law, then they are uh, in in, uh, in debt in, well, they in her in here uh, qualified immunity. And that means that if you sue a police officer and they can present initially that they were working as a cop, particularly say, let's say they're in uniform on duty and that there's no clear statutory or constitutional uh, violation. They haven't done anything that was a clear violation of someone's constitutional rights. Then, if a court agrees with that, case is over. You won't even dis- you won't even go into any further exploration. The case will be dismissed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, some people, uh, and I think would be right to say, well, there—that's a hurdle they have to get over. Uh, they have to prove, as some would say, we can look at um, you know the the Floyd incident. I mean, I'm sure most are not going to have many problems from their own observation of that video that. He was being deprived of a constitutional right mm-hmm. to be free from assault and, and his life being taken. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other is the officer has to be aware of that. And, and it's not subjective. The officer doesn't just get to say, oh, that's what I, th- I thought he was fine. It, it's an objective standard, meaning others looking at it in a reasonable way would one expect you knew what you were doing was in violation of his, you know, protections under the law. Um, And if you can get over that hurdle, um, then you will be able to at least let the lawsuit go forward. But that's a much more difficult process than in practice than most people realize. Qualified immunity is a very big shield. Um, You know, the difference between what I might face and a, Officer and qualified immunity, at least as an initial, I wouldn't even have to hire counsel. I mean, we mm-hmm. it would be thrown out immediately, right? If, if you're a police officer, um, you know you'll get because they all have unions. You'll get police representation, and that's the first thing they're always going to address because it's almost like a procedural stop. If if the court finds no, they were uh, operating under qualified immunity. Done. Uh, nothing more going forward. If you do not prevail as a police officer and the court says, no, I, 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 think it appears at least, uh, and I don't know what the burden is probably beyond a, uh, it's not beyond a reasonable doubt. It's probably by a preponderance of the evidence, um, that it looks like you were violating and you knew you were violating a constitutional right. All that does is let the case go forward. Um, and so, the you know, what some people say that the officer can still defend himself. He can still he still has all the defenses that someone might otherwise have. Um, the twofold difficulty, of course, is for a police officer. Now you've got legal bills that are going to go through the roof. Right. Because you've got to defend the lawsuit. And God forbid, if you're in a situation like the Floyd situation, I mean, that's. No, no lawyer defending him is going to look forward to that case. Uh, that's mm-hmm. a that's a those that are a tough set of facts to work with. Um, so, so it
0: makes so anyway. you wonder if if um, if qualified immunity. I mean, you said it could, it's something that could be repealed, but certainly the scope of it could be adjusted appropriately. Um, because how many have how many of these people that have been completely innocent have we seen the police kill. I mean, now obviously George Floyd, he had, there was something else happening. It seemed like the punishment clearly was way over the line. Um, But for, you know, in the case of like Breonna Taylor, hundred percent innocent, but her family has no recourse at all.
1: Uh, Right. Well, they could, they could sue. Um, They undoubtedly be met initially with a qualified immunity claim and I can't speak to that prospective case. I mean, as far as I know, no, they haven't sued as of yet. Um, uh, So I but I I could just gather that the next thing that would happen is they would say, well, they're not entitled to qualified immunity that even though they were operating within the course and scope of their job, meaning they Mm -hmm. were executing a warrant. Uh, What they did was not objectively reasonable, um, you know, under, you know, police practices. They should have provided more notice. Um, They should have not been so quick to blast through the door. Um, But I can tell you that's not how police work works in this situation. Uh, We talk about knock and notice. It is often bang, 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 really loud in the middle of the night, Police with a search warrant and you got one, 1,000, 1,000, that door's coming off the hinges. Wow. And um, it sounds, I don't know the facts either specifically. It sounds like her boyfriend or husband, whichever it was, uh, had a gun. Maybe he has a history I i think I read. And I don't, I don't know, know, that know that that much matters. Um, uh, but he had a gun and he, someone blast through my front door. If I had a gun, uh, I might be in you know, des- desirous to use it because I don't know what's mm-hmm. happening.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, and as soon as he fired, th- they were unloading, and and that was the re- end result of that. So, um, y- you know, the 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 inquiry into their qualified immunity can still occur. I can tell you that I'd be shocked in that particular case, if it was not upheld. In other words, any court would find, no, they were entitled to qualified immunity. And then, as you said, they're done. They're without a recourse.
0: Right. Yeah. So, so do you think there's a a reasonable um, case to be made that that qualified immunity could be adjusted, changed, repealed? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think it can be. Uh, the, the, the problem is going to be um, it is a non-starter for any law enforcement entity. Uh, the law enforcement unions, uh, the oh, department will fight it with everything they have.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, it is critical to them. And you can understand why if you're sure. a police officer and you're thinking, look, I go out there. I'm just trying to do my job. Every time I turn around, I'm going to get sued. I mean, I'm not making enough money to have them take my house. And I'm just trying to, you know, do my job. And that is, I think, a valid response. On the other hand, like I said before, it is a tough job. And who knows? Maybe we need to, you know, get people who are better trained, better recruited. I heard Jay Johnson who's the former head of the department of Homeland security under the Obama administration. He was interviewed on Sunday and he said, uh, he didn't think it was necessarily a problem with training. He thought it was with recruiting who we recruit in law mm. enforcement. Uh, I tend to think it's both. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there is more that can be done in training, but, uh, you know, you're really elevating the standard upon which, you know, uh, you know, the, the kind of people we're going to put in police uniform, in order to entice them to come in, you better be able, to, I guess, to pay them more um, because, you know, no, no one in there, I just don't think you're going to find a whole lot of people willing to become a cop to make, you know, relatively middling salary, knowing that trying to do their job, they can be sued at every turn and have, mm-hmm. you know, and, and have to defend themselves in a court of law. Um, so as a practical matter, it's a problem for law enforcement that I see why it would be a problem. I think they have a valid argument there. Uh, the more difficult issue, quite frankly, is politically. Uh, that's going to be an awful tough road because right. the police um, make it very clear that, you, you know, if you're going to be get the support of the police unions— better be in agreement with their protections and that goes to prosecutors it goes to judges
0: i mean go ahead when you excuse me um yeah when you were defending um police officers in court what were the type of cases that you were defending them on
1: I, everything from, uh, you know, kind of a dereliction of duty thing, uh, you know, they weren't innocuous, but they're, look, cops are real people. They have real problems and difficulties. I mean, I had one cop, uh, I represented uh, deputy sheriffs in a county, not San Diego County, and I'll just leave it at that because I don't think it matters. Um, And uh, they... Uh, One, for example, was a cop who has a drinking problem and he was Mm -hmm. drinking a lot and off duty and he got into it in a bar and he pulled out a service weapon, which he carries with him always. And I will Mm -hmm. tell you, most cops carry their weapon always. Um, In fact, many are told you you're an idiot if you don't. Um, cause you never know what can happen. So you'll mm-hmm. see plainclothes guys out there or gals, and they may have an anchor ankle holster or, or in their backpack or whatever it may be. They've got a weapon and they're entitled to carry it. Um, so this gentleman in particular, uh, has a drinking problem and you know, what, it, where does it result in? And his, when he gets mad, he, and he's drunk, he pulled out that weapon and is firing it off. in a. I think it was a TJI Fridays.
0: <laughs> oh my,
1: uh, that'll, That'll catch your attention. (laughs) Um, But, you know, those to me are, you know, on one side. The other were maybe more in line with what you're thinking. Assault under color of authority is a classic charge against law enforcement. Um, Many of the things I handled were in the internal affairs arena. Uh, So when there's an incident, internal affairs in a department investigates, they conduct an inquiry and they can discipline an officer. Uh, and there's an entire structure, uh, for God's sakes, there's something in the California statute that we, you know, have, it's referred to as the POBR, the police officer bill of rights. Uh, and there are a lot of hurdles that people have to go through to just discipline an officer who is committed or is alleged to have committed wrongdoing. Um, so that's where I spent a lot of time in, in internal affairs investigations that then went on to, you know, arbitrations, you know, when that discipline was imposed. Uh, in some cases, uh, a criminal charge was issued and I defended them in the criminal courts. Um, so I've handled those and I've handled cops who are simply trying to do their job and, and help someone who uh, another one, my very first one in this whole arena was a cop, who is about to get off duty. Um, Here's a call over the radio and up in this County, they are all in solo cars um, and his partner or beat partner is out there in a, in a somewhat isolated area. And he's making a call that he's responding to a domestic violence call, which every police officer will tell you is the most difficult calls because they're oh, so yeah. unpredictable. Yes. And somewhere in the middle of it, his radio was breaking up, which tended, turned out to be not an uncommon event uh, in in this county. Uh, and they could hear him yelling that he's got, you know, a suspect with a weapon. And so now all the bells are off. I mean, domestic violence incident, someone's got a weapon, a solo officer out there. We got to get backup to him. My uh, client at the time was getting off duty. He heard it. He jumped on the radio. He said, I'll... I'll respond. Uh, and he did. Uh, and he went and balls out to get to this, uh, and lost control of the vehicle on the way and wiped out and hit a tree and was in the hospital for six months. Oh, and then they disciplined him. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and this is what cops on the, you know, what a typical cop faces, look, he's just trying to do his job. And I actually had the, you know, who became the chief eventually, the sheriff Uh, at the time he was an assistant or a chief, uh, you know, or or a captain, a couple levels below. And I had him in arbitration. I asked him at what point did you take that into account? And he just leaned forward to me and said, Mr. Murray, he didn't make it, did he? And I thought, boy, doesn't that speak volumes? Um, Hmm. The effort didn't matter if he didn't make it. And, uh, and he destroyed a police car in the process. (laughs) not 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 to mention his own body so you know the cops are you know really in this bind of they're being questioned on multiple sides on the you know again i'm never going to say you know what they need to get you know a benefit of the doubt it's a tough job you know uh i'm not a i wouldn't say i'm not a fan of them it's just not my level of comedy um written it. Oh, Chris Rock. is okay. uh, He's funny. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I i think it's, you know, maybe I'm too old to really appreciate half of his humor. Um, but I heard him say something I thought is right on. And it was dealing with uh, this notion of, look, there are bad cops, you know, because they're people. Mm-hmm. True. I've always said that's, that's true. But he said, but uh, this is a profession we can't have bad ones. It's like having mm-hmm. a bad pilot. You know, what are you going to tell people? You know, it's like, yeah. you know, look, most of our pilots can land the plane. Now eh, we got a few that might crash, but you know, don't, you know, that's, but that's a vast minority. Mm-hmm. It, it, we can't have bad ones. We have to find them and be able to get them uh, either preclude them from being a cop or get them out. And I think that's what Jay Johnson, the former department of Homeland security is talking about recruiting people that we have to screen out that are just not, you know, in tune to the level of this work, because it's difficult work. And you have got to be able to both protect yourself and the people, but also not become an assailant in a war on the streets. Right. And um, so I I ramble on. But I, I think that gives you some idea of, you know, some of the things I touched on is a lot of almost everything cops do. I've represented cops who were Quite frankly, I mean, I know the story and I was aghast of what, I mean, they were doing a drug investigation and they were operated like cowboys. They were out there um, running from site to site, just rolling places. I mean, it was out of control. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, my problem with it is the the guy they were going after, my client was, you know, about three rungs down, you know, in seniority on the team. And they were giving the, you know, the sergeant who was in charge of it a pass. I'm like, you know, where's the leadership here? Right. You know, walking down the street, going to a a house that they believed had drugs in and we're going to, you know, take it down. And there were people out on a, on on a patio, on a porch, you know, a second floor porch who were like literally just watching. Oh, what are the cops doing? They're all in riot gear. You know, the cops are all in their, Mm -hmm. you know, search gear, helmets and everything else long-armed, uh, long rifles. And they, because I had it on audio and video, I mean, they scream at them, tell them, get in the house, and then they pop a round of smoke up at them. I mean, these wow. are people who just live in there. And this th-
0: this is not that uncommon. It happens. Um, so is are there cases that you've run into? So you say that there's disciplinary action taken against police, but... Does the police union have the power to kind of shield or protect, you know, their guys uh, from, you know, really being held accountable?
1: I, You know, the unions and I won't presume to speak for the unions. Uh, they I think they will tell you their job is first and foremost to protect their members, which is what a union should do. Uh, right. So I'm fine with that uh, to protect them in every way, you know, both their benefits their salaries but also the protections of work and that includes um you know to ensure that the police officer bill of rights is followed so that you know if a, a police officer is detained by internal affairs because of an incident the first thing that's going to happen and they tell them all the time the first thing you do is you call the union and ask for a rep and right. get a rep there don't talk mm-hmm. you don't talk to anybody without a rep And, um, and then if need be, and it goes further, we'll get you counsel. I mean, and so they do. Um, you know, the problem I have with the unions is they've got to realize that when there are bad incidents, they've got to become part of the solution instead of putting up the barriers. And I think they feel, and maybe somewhat justifiably under siege right now. And, um, They, you know, they're when they when you put up, you know, that that mentality of they're coming after us instead of realizing your sole existence is for the protection of those people out on the streets. um, Instead of that us versus them mentality, uh, you know, you're you're starting to lose it. And Mm -hmm. and unions uh, tend to be looking at it that way. And I will tell you, they use their political power. I don't blame them for it. I've seen it firsthand. They use their political power. Let's put it this way. As a DA, now, this may be changing. We're seeing some things. But as a DA, through most of my career, if you don't have the backing of the police unions, you haven't got a chance. Right. Quite frankly, right. as a judge, if you don't have the backing of the police unions, you don't have a chance.
0: Mm-hmm. And. I mean- um we, we see That's, that in a lot of other, like with school district, you know, I, which I have a little more experience yeah. with. The same thing plays out. If you don't have the teacher's union endorsement, you're going to have a tough time winning an election, you know? So, right. yeah, those, they, those unions have right. a ton of power. And then there's a little bit of that quid pro quo that goes on where the politicians get their support, they get elected, and then they are able to offer more benefits, power, pay to those union members.
1: Yeah, that's true. And it, um, you yeah, know, look, I, I, no secret, I ran in a campaign and and I want to be careful here because I'm not going to say this was ever, let's put it this way. My interpretation of my interviews with various police agencies was to make sure, are you one of us?
0: Mm, yeah.
1: Read that. You're going to, you know, you're not going to let these you know, willy nilly lawsuits go forward in your courtroom. Are you, uh, I was never asked that per se, but I'm not stupid. I know how to, you know, read between the lines. Sure. Uh, and it is the perception of, okay, I get it. You're one of us. You'll protect us. And, you know, when we start to do that, we're getting into some really difficult areas. Um, and I, I even more so with the prosecutors, I mean, you know, look, when a cop brings in a case, To a DA, I mean, the DA, this should not be, you know, we like to say it's a team. It's not Mm -hmm. a team. It's another level. You've done your work. Now you give it to the prosecutor, the prosecution office, and they do theirs completely independently in every Mm -hmm. way. And if you don't like the result, officer, sorry. I mean, get the people to vote the DA out. Um, But it's, um, there's two, we've gotten too close with each other. And we see that in specialized units where they have prosecution prosecutors who are part of special enforcement details, in particular drugs and gangs and i have I've watched that from the earliest days it never struck me as something that what I thought was a, a good way to go um, you know we had special gang prosecutors I mean first of all i I, I just thought. Look, if we want to take the gangs down from what they're doing and they are wreaking havoc in the community, mm-hmm. we don't want to give them the credibility of, boy, you're so special. You get your very own special <laughs> DA. Yeah. And I've heard them say that. Yeah. They, they see it. They know <sighs> we're the real badasses. We know. We get right. special gang police <laughs> and gang prosecutors. Mm-hmm. Um, hey you know, we've just maybe gotten too close. Um, and in so doing, you know, uh, to the degree prosecutors and judges are protecting police instead of being the neutral arbiters of facts that come in, then we've definitely got a problem. And I think that's, that's part of it. I mean, um, you know, so when you go back, this kind of ties to this whole qualified immunity. Who's going to make the call on that? A judge. And, you know, when they get in a courtroom, you know, a judge, I'm not saying it's ever happened. I won't point to ones. I have experience that makes me even say this, which is if you're a judge who may be up for election soon, as they all are eventually, and there's a police officer, and you know the union is adamantly – against this, you know, civil case going against them. That's a pretty tough place to put a judge. Mm. Because they know, you know what, you rule against them, you've just earned some enemies.
0: Right. So yeah, it is a tough spot because then you you, the the judge maybe, you know, has potential conflict of interest. And yeah, that can weigh heavy. Well, you—it's you know, a little bit of a jumping-off point. So you, you're talking about special um, DAs just for for um, the gangs involved with drugs. What, let's let's shift gears and talk a little bit about the war on drugs, um, and how that plays into this notion of systemic racism. Um, that's the claim that is often made. It's a, it's a point of view that I happen to agree with, uh, but I'm curious to know how you see it from your perspective. Is the is the war on drugs prosecuted more disproportionately against people of color?
1: Well, uh, you know, I personally was never in a specialized drug prosecution unit. So mm-hmm. disclaimer there. I mean, I've okay. seen it up close and personal. I have prosecuted drug cases, uh, you know, hand to hand sales, undercover sales and those kinds of things. Um, so with that disclaimer, though, I, I, I don't know that I could say that it is racist per se. And by that, I mean, let me go back to the phrase you use systemic racism. Um, I'm going to turn back to Jay Johnson, former head of the Department of Homeland Security, who happens to be a, a black man. And he was asked that question too. And I, and I'll join him in that, which is. He doesn't, you know, it depends on how you're going to define that term. Um, Because depending on how broadly you want to define it, yes, maybe there, you know, you can say there is. But if someone were to ask me when I hear it, I go, so are are you saying that there is racism built into the system on purpose? Um, I I guess I can't point to anything that, Mm -hmm. you know, that says that. Now, let me be clear, because I've probably just ticked off a whole bunch of people (laughs) to say that in operation, in practice, there is clearly something racist within our system because the numbers don't lie. Uh, When we look at the war on drugs, um, far more persons of color, in particular black Americans, are prosecuted under the drug laws than, than white. Um, it certainly, as a percentage, uh, you know, I read recently. We can say, you know, people like to say, you know, look, let's call the lie to it. More white persons were killed by police in, you know, a period of not 2016 to 2019 mm-hmm. than black Americans were killed by police. So there. Well, of course, <laughs> that that misses, you know, you're now you're playing with statistics. Right. Because, you know, something like 23 percent of the killings were of African black Americans and they only constitute 13 percent of the population. When you have that kind of skew, something's wrong. Something within the system is wrong that that is happening. And I would say the same with drugs. If we're um, I don't think cops are out there going, let's go find, you know, Latino or black Americans to prosecute. But the mm-hmm. way we approach that war, it is invariably capturing much more of the minority population, mm-hmm. um, and so, and that's why I say I, I, I guess I just am very hesitant to start putting labels. I got asked that in the judicial campaign. Do you, you know, do you think the judicial system is systemically racist? And depending on which group I was in front of, you know, the the correct answer is yes. Um, <laughs> and I had. <laughs> a problem with that because i go i mean to me we have to define those terms and make sure we're talking the same language and so do I, do I don't see that anyone i think we've made a lot of strides to correct overt racism um but we clearly haven't made enough strides to overcome implicit racism that somehow is part and parcel to our system. If I had the answers of how to do that, I guess I'd be in a different seat right now. Um, mm-hmm. But but I think those are the questions we need to ask. Where? Where is it within this system that, that, that it's going wrong? Why are we ending up capturing so many more um, black Americans, certainly in the drug laws? Why are so many uh, sentenced to more... Uh, uh, you know, to more serious uh, sentencings, uh, length of time in prison or whatever, than the typical white drug. um, And and I'll let other people speak to the specific statistics there, but I, I don't think any of us who've been in the system long enough will doubt that it's clearly been skewed. Now, part of it was pretty obvious, you know, when we did something like crack cocaine, which happened to be, I hate to use the word popular, but it was more prevalent in the black community, had a far more serious uh, prison term with it than regular powder cocaine, which tended to be more prevalent in the white community. Right. You need to push back from the table and go, "Why? Why is that? Are we saying that crack, crack cocaine is much worse? Okay, maybe it's a little more potent, but it's still the damn same damn stuff." Um, and, and I think that's what we need to do, John. Is we need to be more serious about our inquiries and and instead of just You know, either putting labels on things and trying to come up with knee-jerk reactions and, uh, you know, quick fixes that aren't going to do anything. Because I think that's why, as we started out with, 40 years later, we still have some of the same problems. Because we're not getting to the root cause uh, of of these issues. And that's, you know, that's hard. I get it. Uh, But you know what? It's not going to get any easier unless we start attacking it. Mm -hmm. And that's my concern is, you know, I I just it's not as simple as, you know, uh, all police are racist, defund the police. I mean, maybe they shouldn't have some of the weapons they have. And I'd be the first to agree with that. Mm -hmm. But when we say defund the police, what are you talking about? You want to remove an entire police force? Okay, Uh, well, what are you going to put in its place, if anything? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we got to come up with real solutions that make sense. And, uh, you know, people ask me, do you think cops are racist? And I, I, I think I know they've been trained to have a sensitivity to diversity. I know there's a lot of heck, there's a lot of black, uh, policemen in every police department in the country. I'm sure. And I know in the various, uh, you know, organizations here in San Diego County, um, Yet we still see this, you know, uh, significant distinction between the pro- you know, the, the criminalization of minorities over over whites. And why is that? And part of it, I think, is because it's not overt racism. That's almost easier to correct. You find someone who's overtly racist, you identify them and you kick him out. It's the ones who, you know, uh, pretend they're not or harbor certain stereotypes that aren't, you know, aren't factual and they act on them. Um, um, And we need to be able to root those out and, you know, tell them, look, you have every right, First Amendment right to speak some of the vile stuff you want to speak, but you're not going to do it as a police officer. Uh, And when we find those people, we can't say you know, protect them under the, the guise of a police officer bill of rights and discipline them and whatever that doesn't get out. Those are, those are confidential records. Um, you know, we got to be able to, to get them out while at the same time, I'm not making the police feel that they're under siege right now mm-hmm. um, is probably, I think the most troubling time because not oh, only yeah. are people angry out there, but, but when cops feel like they're under siege, and they have weapons, Um, that's a very volatile situation. And I'm not surprised that there's been excessive use of force in some of these protesting. I mean, the cops are scared, some of them. They don't know what they're facing. And so, um, you know, again, I think I've I've spun off there, but I, I, I wanted to touch on this notion of Uh, systemic racism, because I go, I mean, we've got to know what we're saying when we say those phrases. And what are we really talking about before we can begin to address the solutions? Um, Mm -hmm. We've got to understand what it is we're really talking about.
0: That's a fair point. I mean, I, I, I know that people bring up the topic systemic racism quite often, but yeah, what do you really mean by that? Because on the face, the law itself isn't racist. Right, it doesn't yeah. say go after these people, but not those people. But then the way that it's enforced, it somehow turns out that way. It makes you wonder: is it natural just to go after poor communities, which happen to be more uh, people of color? And then there's other laws that are put in place, like mandatory minimums, you know, that yeah. end up indirectly, actually directly affecting people of color. It kind of makes you wonder if. The, th- that certain people know that the law isn't racist on its face, but it's going to have a racial outcome that is not favorable. And maybe there are some people that are OK with that. Um, you know, it, it's just we, you're right. We haven't solved the problem. There's a lot more work that needs to be done.
1: You know, one of the things I think we talked about this the last time we talked and, uh, you know, quite frankly, I responded this way and I don't think it went over big with the Union Tribune in particular. Uh, It's not what they want to hear. Um, But one of the things I said when we're talking about it, they were, I think, uh, where I was responding to is something that needs to be changed in the criminal justice system. Name one thing. Uh, My God, I could list Dozens of things, um, you know, and, and some of them want to get down into the, you know, oh, we need to change, you know, the bail and have bail reform or mandatory minimums and so forth, all of which I agree. But to me, the common frame was we're taking away discretion from the person who is at least arguably in the best position to make a just call. Mm -hmm. And that's the judge. When we, anytime you talk about mandatory minimums, you're limiting the discretion of the judge. If you're talking about bail reform, you're limiting the discretion of the judge. And someone says, so you want to make these judges so much more uh, powerful. And I said, well, they answer to the people. I mean, I I get it. Uh, There has been one in my career, maybe two sitting judges defeated in San Diego County in 40 years. Um, and I, so I get that it's hard to get them out. Well, maybe the answer is we need to come up with ways that you know, that these are public records. Let's talk about what judges are doing, what sentencing they're handing down in, in specific cases. It's too easy to say, you know, look, I, you're a, you sound like an okay guy, but I'm tied by the law. And boy, that makes life a lot easier. Uh, Mm -hmm. As a judge, I'd rather make it a little less easy on you. You're going to make some tough calls and you're going to live with them. And if you think it's the right thing and you make the call, you live with the consequences. If the people, the police on one hand or uh, the the electorate don't agree with you and they come after you, then so be it. That's part of the job. Um, But when we allow them to, and and I won't say most of them do not, but some hide behind this which is, you know, look, I, I, I but, you know, the law says mandatory minimum. I have to do this. I have to do that. Um, now we've moved the process into, you know, a piece of legislation that is so much harder to change because it's buried in any number of crime bills instead of handing it to the judge and go, you read of it. you understand the crime, mm-hmm. you know what happened. You get all the background on this individual. You know their history. You know where they came from. You've gotten a full report done. Now you decide what is the most fair and equitable result of this case. Um, and I, I for one, tend to think that's where we need to go. Um, and then pay well, a Go
0: ahead. That's their job title, right? Judge.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Is your judgment? Absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. you sit in judgment. It's a <laughs> the call, um, should, um, you know, look, judges are worried too, you know, Jesus, if I get run against, uh, and defeated, I'm out of a job, you know, so maybe you come up with ways to look, Congress has figured it out. You know, they have such a generous, uh, you know, lifetime, you know, pension that, uh, you know, they're less worried about being voted out of office. Uh, I would say generally, uh, you know, a judge. Some of them, depending on how old you are, if you haven't, you know, reached the magic numbers, you can spend 15 years on the bench and be out of a job. And uh, now you got to go find a job somewhere else. You know, knock on the door right. of a law firm, they're like, "What have you been doing for 15 years? I've been a judge." Well, that's all well and good, but how are we going to make money off of you, or whatever the case may be? So, mm-hmm. um, you know. I I just would love to see, I I saw too much as maybe obvious too much, and it's, it's subtle, but too much politics in even a judicial race. Um, You needed to get the right persons and organizations behind you. And uh, man, that shouldn't be the way it is. It's not, you know, that's just my, my feeling because, you know, if, If I have all the police unions behind me and all and the prosecutors behind me, um, you know, you can't tell me that doesn't impact your rulings, you know, your unbiased judgment going forward. Um, So anyway, I I mean, I've taken us off topic, but, you know, to me. You know, I think if you saw that, if you saw Judges with somewhat unfettered Discretion Uh, And Where there is racism It'd be incredibly clear Because you can explore their You know those judges records And I don't think it'd be hard too hard To figure out who's sentencing Minorities more harshly than Whites for the same crime Um, And that That is one way To expose it I, I get concerned About again when we say systemic racism and i know because i know the minute i say i don't think there is systemic racism I, I, people stop listening to me they're oh my god you're one of those <laughs> and i say, well you're not listening yeah, to me what yeah. i'm saying is i know there's implicit racism within the system um trying to pull it out like a weed figuring out where it's growing and then and then how we get rid of it is really the work we need to do rather than just going it's systemic racism throw it all out and right. and then what start all over um so those are some thoughts
0: so i gotta ask you kind of a little off top topic question in the back of the room am i seeing a couple of swords is that what those are
1: uh you you are uh, i'm sure somebody will find some way to Assume I'm some kind of uh, God knows what with those. Those samurai are samurai warrior. They are <laughs> replica. Uh, I wish that I wouldn't leave them here in this. I, I have this other structure in my property and this is where my office is. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they were authentic samurai swords, I wouldn't have them just sitting up here. They're they're replica <laughs> samurai swords from my time in the Navy. I got them when I was deployed in the Far East. Oh, good for you. Yeah. Yeah. So that's exactly what those are. All right. They're kind of cool. They're etched in there. My son likes to, you know, pull them out and play with them a little bit. And I tell him before you, like, whack your leg off, put it back. Uh, (laughs) Nice. Yeah.
0: Good. I mean, we've covered so much ground here. I mean, we've we've talked about, um, you know, qualified immunity and law and order and the drug war and militarization and no-knock warrants. Mandatory minimums. I mean, what have we missed? I think we've we've covered a lot.
1: We have. And it's, um, you know, I guess I, I, I'm i trying to, you know, come up with a summation, if you will, without trying to be too lawyerly like. But I, I just kind of look at this, you know, and I, I guess I would say and maybe this is it. um, You know, as I sit here, whether I'm in my office working, I take a break out in my backyard, which, you know, I'm very fortunate. God, I can't imagine what some of these folks who, say, live in New York City, maybe a beautiful apartment, and have young kids. Oh, my God. They're, you know, trapped in the apartment, trying to homeschool them. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I I, I don't know how people do that. Uh, I'm, I'm going stir crazy with a pretty comfortable situation with just one high schooler. But, um But I come away with it, I mean, troubled uh, about where we're at and where we may be going. Um, Hopeful that we're not just, you know, uh, riot redux number five or whatever it may be. And this too shall pass and we go right back to it. Hopefully there's some good to come out of it. Um, But wanting... You know, I always I said to some people at the, at the front end of this COVID thing that, you know, before once you get over the shock and, and it literally it's like getting punched in the face and stumbling, trying to absorb it. I don't know that the world will change completely, but there will be changes. There are going to be changes. And, and, and as an optimist, which I always am, uh, I believe that we'll make changes for the better you know, with each, it may not be as much as we'd like, but I believe there will be that. And it's fun to think of what opportunities, you know, will be out there. What, what, you know, even this mode, you know, zoom communications is (laughs) made a whole bunch of money. uh, (laughs) Good for them. Uh, Good on them. They were there where they, you know, in the right place at the right time, but, but looking, especially with the, you know, the situation with Floyd, um, you know, I would like, I mean, look, I'm not going to ever doubt that that was a homicide. It was a killing of another human being. Mm-hmm. I, I actually did the research a little bit to understand because murder in California is an intentional killing. Uh, in Minnesota, uh, this charge, he's now been charged with second degree murder uh, can be, you know, they have two subsections, both an intentional killing, but also an unintentional killing while intentionally committing a felony. Um, mm mm-hmm. And he may have some real problem with that subsection of the second-degree murder clause. But but what I guess I say is let's not jump too far ahead of the facts. We're all aghast at what happened. It's really easy to say how horrific it is. Of course it is. Any police officer – I saw a piece by a a police officer who teaches, it. you know, uh, has for 20 years in the defensive tactics. He he said there's no part that you ever – stick in someone's neck and hold them down like that. Um, That's just, there's just no part of any acceptable tactic. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we can see those obvious things, but, but let's let, you know, let's have some faith that the system, and I know this is a hard ask for some people out there who don't feel the system's ever been there for them, but we've got to let the system, you know, if you believe in it at its core, at the constitution and what it stands for and I do, and I'm unabashed about that. And I believe it has lots of room for improvement. Uh, but if you believe in that, then we've got to let the system work out and make our corrections where we see they need to be made and understand what the real issues and real problems are and attack those. Um, there's just too many, too much of this country is too good too many good people. I, I mean, you know, if if one watches the news, you would think we're all at each other's throats. Yet, <laughs> right, right, people out there and 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 uh, you know, uh, Latino, white, black, Asian. Uh, I mean, people get along all the time. Um, so I, I'm I'm encouraged. Uh, and I'm optimistic that we'll make our way through it, but hopefully we'll we'll make some changes that make people who have feel, who have felt like they're outside this system for too long, that they're starting to be hurt. And uh, and let's just start, you know, I would just hope, I said this right when I shut down my campaign at the end there, I, and this COVID thing had struck, and maybe I'll leave you with this thought is, And I still believe this. It's gotten hard over the last three months to still believe this, but I'm reminded of Apollo 13 when uh, they were trying. That was the Apollo mission that uh, had a catastrophic failure midway. They had to turn back from the moon. They never made it. Eleven? No, eleven landed on the moon. Uh, Thirteen. Okay, you're
0: right. I had it wrong. My bad. Yeah, Yeah, you're right.
1: Yeah, I you know that was one of my uh, quests that I never quite made. I made it as a naval aviator. I never quite made it to NASA mm-hmm. as an astronaut mm-hmm. as I did wanted to be as a little kid. But um when Apollo 13 was coming back and it's in the movie and it's been documented and you know whether they got the exact phrasing right who knows, but at one point one of the mission personnel are talking to reporters and saying, "Look, there's a million things that could go wrong here." I mean, if it comes in just a slight degree to too steep, it'll, uh, it'll just burn up in the atmosphere and they'll be toasted. Uh, if it's a, you know a slight degree too shallow, they'll simply bounce off the atmosphere and go off into space, never to be heard from again. Uh, and he said, there's any number of things that could go wrong. Uh, this could be the worst day in NASA's history. And the mission director turned to him hearing that and said, gentlemen, with all due respect, I actually think this will be our finest hour.
0: Ah yeah. And nice. you know
1: that's maybe I'm trite, maybe I'm an old softy, <laughs> but uh, maybe if we get past this divisiveness and we start to listen to each other maybe this is our finest time. Maybe we're we'll start to make some real advances and stop you know turning everyone uh, into an enemy and that seems to be you no know, it, it feels like too often, maybe maybe more so in the media. And I'll be honest, I'll call him out right now is, uh, you know, the number one person um, is the one who needs to lead that, um, who has to be that that voice of unity. And he's been anything but. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never thought Trump would make it through four years. I, I when he was elected, I was shocked. I never thought that could possibly yeah, really. Mm hmm. And I told people, I told my wife, I said, you watch, I don't know if it'll be a month, uh, two months, a year. He's going to spin out of control. He's not going to make it through a full term. Well, he shocked me again, because there he is. And, um, you know, but I think what we've seen in crisis, the failure of leadership is pronounced. and watch what I see is an ultimate failure of leadership. It's not lightly that people like general Mattis finally comes out and, Mm -hmm. and says what he's not comfortable saying is to attack a sitting president, but he he's reached that point where I'm sure he feels he has no choice. And, uh, Admiral Mullen, former chairman of the joint chiefs of staff, likewise, Colin Powell. I mean, Mm -hmm. um, you know, when, Mitt Romney whatever you think of him who who decides to join a protest march is then attacked by our president uh i mean it i just want to say mr trump with all due respect sir i understand you the president the commander in chief you need to step down you need to go away mm-hmm. um and why the republican party um uh, and I'll say, I once was a member of the Republican Party. I am not, and could not be uh, now, and uh, because they have forsaken you know, the party of Lincoln by my mind, um, how they can support this guy in any way is is just baffling to me. Um, but I, you know, I see too many people say, and say, "Look, you want to support him, go for it." But let's stop calling each other names. Um, and and reduce this down to, look, we got problems. How about we sit down and try to figure out how to solve them Mm -hmm. Uh, and listen to each other? Um, You know, I uh, like I said, um, a friend of my son's, you know, posted something. Something I would have never, I talked about this, I think, once before. Uh, I never would have expected to come from him, and maybe this shows, you know, kind of my white privilege, that I I, I need to, we really need to, dive deep into what we've experienced to see where, how does this tap? And here's a young man who went to a fine high school. I'm not going to repeat it here. One of the, you know, a top high school in San Diego went to a fine university. He's now graduating from one of the best in the nation here locally. Okay. It's UCSD. I'll speak it. Um, Go try. And I know you would like that. Um, (laughs) And he, he felt, I wouldn't even say compelled. He felt like he needed to stand, you know, post something to say, "Look, you know, as a black man as he is, um, uh, I want to share with people what I feel and have felt my whole life when I walk down a street and people look at me and and wonder, you know, I feel it." Now, someone might say, "No one's doing anything against you," but why does he feel that way? And he, and as I wrote to him, uh, I won't say his name, but I said, uh, "You know, someone of your." character uh, you're one of the finest young men i know you should never uh, how is it you ever feel that way we have to do better right we have to do better if 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 he's feeling that then we're failing and that's what we need to get to because we can't afford to have men like that or women you know feeling like they're somehow second class that's you started out here you know that's what equality under the law is all about. That's right. It mm-hmm. matters not. And we have to, we have to start, you know, uh, you know, walking the walk and not just repeating that phrase in the talk. Uh, we need to make sure that it really exists there. And, um, and I don't have the solutions, so I, I, I
0: mean, but I do know we need to work at it. Well, hopefully this is our finest hour. Um, all this uh, chaos... Come into light it's in an election year, so we yes, can choose a new leader. We have an opportunity yeah. to do that. Um, I share your opinions on our president. he is not a uniter he's a divider, um, and we need unity and it's especially at a time like this so um, wow this has been a great conversation Pete I'm really enjoying this i I hope our listeners and viewers have enjoyed it too
1: yeah I'm sure I've got myself in trouble with both <laughs> sides of the aisle and and you know what if I have I'm fine with that because I'm not on either side. I faced it in the campaign. I'm tired of people who basically were looking for that buzz term of who you support. I I could hear the camouflage language. Yeah. You know, the Republicans wanted to hear that I was a Trump man and the Democrats wanted to hear I wasn't. And I wasn't going to give them that because I'm not that simple. As I used to say, look, I'm, you know, is a nonpartisan race. If I got to choose, you you couldn't run for judge if you were a member of a, a political party. I, I think that should be a, a law. Mm-hmm. That should be a rule. I agree. Um, but, um, you know, I, I just wish, you know, I, I, why we've divided so much, you know, we could go on for hours um, as to why. But we got to start to figure that out and, and start figuring out how to come back And like I said, when I look out and talk to people, my sense is that um, we're not as divided as the social media makes us out to be.
0: Right. That's true.
1: Maybe that's one of the problems.
0: Yeah. Um, Wow. Pete, thank you so much. I appreciate I hope
1: it. it I hope, if nothing else, it, it's room for thought.
0: It's great. And I think, with your perspective, your background um, as an attorney, as an assistant DA, a deputy AG, a, um, a, a private practice attorney, a, a Navy man, you've got a great perspective. And I'm really happy that you had a chance to share it again here on the podcast. So thanks again, Pete. And um, we wish you well.